0: we Sit back down and join me on a journey through the heart. I can't do this. This is Abe. Welcome to Episode 2 of Radio Free Cascade. How about that intro music? Uh, That was written and produced by Cascade's own Corey Kilpatrick. Corey works in the Student Learning Center. Many, many thanks, Corey, for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, If you'd like to hear more of Corey's uh, music, you can find it on SoundCloud. His username is Donyori, D-O-N-Y-O-R-I. That particular track is called You. So, as I mentioned, this is the second episode of the podcast. As I speak, it is the afternoon of Monday, April 6th. I hope that everyone is back in the saddle for another week and have recuperated sufficiently over the weekend from uh, the first week of what is no doubt going to be uh, the most memorable term we've ever spent. Uh, at Portland Community College. So I hope everyone is well. We've got an interesting episode in store for you this time around. Uh, The interview today is with uh, Lisa George, who, uh, as you all know, is coordinator of the uh, Cascade Teaching and Learning Center. Uh, We had a fascinating discussion about uh, the importance of equity in online learning spaces, how you create it, how you foster it, and how you can create a culturally responsive online learning space. And we also drew on uh, Lisa's expertise as a sociologist. We talked about how human beings behave in times of crisis. And we looked back at similar times in history and the news ultimately is good. Uh, Times like this, periods of sustained crisis tend to bring out historically uh, the best in human behavior. So in an age when we have the ability to remain connected with one another to the extent that we do. We can maintain that sense of community that's so important to us. We can see each other's faces, we can hear each other's voices, uh, and most importantly, we can uh, concentrate resources where they can do the most good. Um, Now, of course, the fact that we're able to do all these things uh, means that we're coming from a position of enormous privilege. So now is a good time to think about how we can put that privilege to good use on behalf of our students, on behalf of the community. And of course, we're also going to hear from you and your audio submissions. Here's how you do that. If you want to give a shout out to the campus, just use the voice memo app on your smartphone and record a brief message to whomever you please or to everybody or to none at all. And you can email that clip to me at abeproctor at yahoo.com. That's A-B-E-P-R-O-C-T-O-R at yahoo.com. I will also play uh, recordings of your music. I will play uh, recordings of you singing in the shower. If you wanna recite poetry, if you wanna do some spoken word, if you wanna do a passage from Shakespeare, we'll put it on the podcast. It's all part of keeping us connected. So um, without further ado then, sit back and enjoy a conversation with Lisa George. All right, we're joined here today by Lisa George. She is the coordinator of the Teaching and Learning Center at the Cascade Campus. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hi Abe, thanks for having me.
0: You bet. Um, How are you doing? How are you holding up?
1: Um, It's hard to tell because all the days are starting to run into each other, but (laughs) I think I'm doing pretty well, all things considered.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're all uh, experiencing time a little bit differently these days.
1: Definitely. It is uh, kind of like a Schrodinger Schrodinger cat (laughs) kind of thing. Uh, We're experiencing time going really quickly and really slowly at the same time. And for those of us who aren't sick, we're also thinking of ourselves as potentially carriers of the virus Mm -hmm. and potentially receivers of the virus at the same time. So there's that,
0: too. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Uh, Yeah, there's virtually nothing that's been left untouched by this, Um, including, as it turns out, um, the need for our instructors to create equitable and culturally responsive educational spaces, which is even more of a challenge uh, when we're doing it in virtual space. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that Um, much of what you do through the TLC in normal times uh, involves helping instructors to be more culturally competent um, and responsive and uh, how to create more equitable uh, educational experiences. So I want to ask you, um, you know, what does cultural responsiveness mean in a remote and online uh, educational setting?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I want to say that that is a really good question. And it's a question that um, we maybe have not thought about enough up until now. And now we are, uh, I'm really happy to be thinking about it more. You know, as um, as human beings, we bring like our own biases and our own worldview with us mm-hmm. wherever we are we do, um, wherever we're going, and um, I think a lot about what Angela Davis said. Angela Davis is a scholar and an activist. Um, she So she says, like, everyone is familiar with the slogan that the personal is political, right? Right. But not only that, what we experience on a personal level has profound political implications, but that our interior lives are like our emotional lives are extremely informed by ideology. And a lot of times that ideology is invisible. So we oftentimes do the work of the state of oppressive entities in our society and to our emotional life that has been produced elsewhere, but it's recruited and reproduced by us to do the work of racism and and repression. So whether or not we want to, Angela Davis is saying, if we're not doing the active work of always trying to consciously and critically understand this and deal with it, uh, we're doing the work of the state in promoting racism and repression. Okay, so this is me talking again, not oh. Angela Davis. Angela Davis, but the 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 remote world, the cyberspace, right? It mm-hmm. creates a setting that has implicit in it its own biases. Our learning management system at PCC, for instance, the D2L um, Brightspace, it was conceived, created, and coded mostly by white male programmers who. Mm-hmm whether or not they're nice people or not in their personal lives, um, embedded in the coding of d 12 Brightspace, a Eurocentric worldview, right? And that um, really structured the way the learning management system is and how it operates. And so culturally sustaining and culturally affirming teaching practices have to, from that foundational level, from the absolute get-go, critically question and address everything, all of that implicitness that's embedded in what we as instructors can do in that LMS. So, like, if LMS stands for learning management system. Okay. So, if if we're doing um, like classroom discussions, we might notice that some people answer first and uh, answer very forcefully. And if we're asking in that classroom discussion for people to respond to one or two classmates, those first answers, and oftentimes those very forceful answers, will get the most amount of feedback and hence reproduce um a dominant world view hmm. based on who has the time to answer first, who has uh developed a presence or a sense of assertiveness online. And we know that those things are related to uh stuff like race and gender. So that's just like one way that the LMS reproduces Uh, racism, and repression in online
0: teaching. This is fascinating, uh, and and it raises, in my mind, a a number of very interesting questions. So I I would guess in a a typical in-person learning environment, um, there's a a set of conditions uh, shaped by um, the template, for lack of a better word, that's been handed down to us from uh, a patriarchal Eurocentric society so as a set of conditions that uh has a tendency to encourage certain people to assert themselves in that space i would guess more often than not white men uh and then when we take this this set of conditions and we transfer them online do, do you see those same tendencies being reinforced or does the fact that we're interacting through this new medium and you know the the implicit and explicit uh changes that that imposes on our dialogue does that tend to reinforce uh those same people to be uh the more outspoken members of an online class or does it provide a window for traditionally marginalized voices to be heard even more
1: um i think it does it it has the ability to do both the great thing about communicating online uh, especially if we don't use video and we use low tech systems, is that people, theoretically at least, right, have, mm-hmm. um, have the ability to present themselves and be understood as raceless, genderless, classless, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay, but so let's think about what that means. What that means in uh, U.S. mainstream society is that uh, it's reinforcing the defaults, and we know that the defaults in a mainstream society, at least, are white, male, and middle class. Hmm. So, if we um, if we don't as instructors or as Facilitators of uh, learning environments uh, call that out. Then it has the potential to reproduce that norm, whether or not we want it to. And the other thing is, is that we know threaded, embedded, and foundational to U.S. society is uh, are things like racism and sexism and classism and ableism, heterosexism and cissexism. If we do not explicitly and consciously call those out in the learning management system environment, uh, they will emerge, either implicitly or explicitly.
0: Hmm. So it sounds it sounds like the need for. Uh, the instructor, or the facilitator, whoever is guiding the discussion in the online educational space. It sounds as if the need to uh, to actively create an equitable space is even more acute under the current circumstances than it would be uh, typically.
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. And, um, and that's in normal circumstances for online learning. As we know, this is unusual, these are unprecedented times. And uh, so like for this term, there's a tension because we know that for sure, um, instructor presence and a really deep and a really rich interaction is important to facilitating a sense of belonging and a sense of mattering for students whether or not that's online or on campus, um, we, we know that um, that kind of presence and um, whatever kind of interaction we instruct or have the ability to take part in, whether that is face-to-face and making eye contact, using body language. Um, using the tone of our voice, or whether or not that is um, online, in videos that we make, um, those things matter. If we have a student that's uh, needing a little support, it's important for us to, for instance, walk with that student to a place where they can find support. We can't do that online, and we know that at this points. Um, <laughs> at this point in our lives, let's see, what's the date today? Today's April 3rd. Uh, there, There's a lot of people who need a little extra support around their lives. I've gotten a ton of emails from students who have lost their jobs, who are worried mm-hmm. about financial things, and I can send them an email uh, with support suggestions, but that's not the same as like walking over to a building and introducing them to somebody in person uh, who can support them
0: so then what are you telling to the instructor community at Cascade about how to as best they can given the current circumstances replicate the sort of uh, the sort of support that you're talking about now how do instructors, virtually walk students to spaces where they can get the support they need
1: well like i said before um, (laughs) the that instructor presence is what's important and conveying that we care conveying that the students matter is the critical piece um a lot of what um people are recommending is synchronous learning situations, like having a live class with um, a Zoom meeting where the teacher is maybe presenting some information or some questions about some readings. Um, it seems like a great idea, but when we start to think about um, like access and availability in the face of the emerging pandemic, it becomes really apparent that building um, uh, that in the opportunity building in the opportunity for synchronous attendance in an online meeting Mm -hmm. can really promote inequities. So So, people will be able to attend more often. We know that folks from poor communities and communities of color are already hit harder by the pandemic. So that brings up the possibility that by our trying to implement this practice, that on the face of it, it seems like it's really promoting equity, uh, equity is really actually quite inequitable. So I'm recommending that uh, we go this term as low-tech as possible and as asynchronous as possible um, for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, because uh, we know that if people have access now, that access might change
2: Mm
1: -hmm. because of the pandemic. Um, But also that people are already really stressed. And so giving folks the opportunity to uh, engage in a way that seems organic to them uh, makes sense. So that means that the instructor has to be really out there and really forward about um, communicating as much as possible, maybe every day,
2: <laughs> right. um,
1: by email you know, with every student, right, um, and really building in that um, sense of a safety net provided by the instructor. But what if the instructor gets sick? Right, 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 right. Because that's a possibility here today. This this term. Um, what the instructor also has to do is create uh that sense of the safety net within the classroom community
0: itself so that the the online educational space becomes itself a place of refuge a source exactly. of comfort that's no exactly. easy trick is it
1: <laughs> it really isn't it really isn't um, one uh one possibility one thing that i'm doing in one of my classes this term is having the students um, introduce themselves by by creating a set of classroom classroom uh, class norms for discussion we got some really great uh, suggestions and the students are really supporting each other and i think it it seems like the students are excited about that level of caring for each other that
0: is coming from their classmates. That's incredible. So you're saying the students themselves are setting the parameters for what does and does not constitute acceptable discourse in the class, and they yeah. are they are doing so in such a way as to uh, as as to maximize uh, respect for one another and to make sure that everybody's voice is able to be expressed. That is extraordinary.
1: Yeah, it really works. Um, I showed them some examples from classes that we've already had uh, a couple of times ago. And I thought that people would pick up on some of the uh, examples from the list that I shared, but they didn't. They're creating a whole new list of things. It's really inspiring.
0: Well, that's remarkable. And maybe a silver lining to all of this, something we can keep uh, when things return to uh, to normal, and I'm making air quotes now around normal, but something we can take with us going forward.
1: Oh, I hope so. <laughs> um,
0: I would like to shift gears a little bit right now, if that's okay. Uh, you yourself have a background in sociology, and I'm wondering that as a sociologist, um, you know, broadly speaking, do we have a reservoir of data that describes how human beings tend to collectively behave in situations like this?
1: Uh, we really do. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, so yeah, I'm a sociologist and um, my areas of specialization are uh, inequality, mm-hmm. race, race and um, gender specifically, and um, education along with um, sport. So that's pretty fun. Uh, One thing that we know is through almost every large disaster, um, overwhelmingly people come together to support each other, to build um, new networks to support community resilience and uh, individual resilience and um, for the communities to get stronger and stay strong. Like That's pretty indisputed. It happens Really consistently, and we can see that in so many areas right now. People coming together to support each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we know, though, that there there are always opportunities, also. So, uh, always. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, I gotta ask. I gotta tell you a joke. Well, actually it's a riddle. Okay, you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, great. Right. How many sociologists does it change? To, does it take to change a light bulb?
0: <laughs> I have no idea.
1: <laughs> uh, it doesn't take any sociologists. The light bulb is mine. It's the system that's broken, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's kind of an oldie movie, but uh, I like but it. The reason that I'm, yeah, it's a good one, right? The reason that I'm telling you this is because. Uh, one of the things that this pandemic has shown us is that the system is actually broken, right? Yes. We, it's obvious that the healthcare system is really deficient and really broken. Um, just imagine how how much better we could all be on top of this situation if we could all get tested. <laughs> right. But we can't.
0: Yeah, we would um, eliminate but- the big known unknown that is hanging over all of this.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. We wouldn't be that cat in a box anymore. Right. <laughs> uh, support workers, childcare workers, the people who are working at grocery stores, folks who are cleaning things and taking care of society's day-to-day needs are actually some of the lowest paid and lowest, um, from a sociological standpoint and using sociology vocabulary, the lowest status workers, right, in right. um in our society right now, are are the people who are holding it all together for us, and they are the least supported, the least unionized, uh, mm-hmm. the the least uh, respected in many ways, right? I mean, think about two months ago how much prestige there was associated with somebody who, um, if they were asked what their job was, they said a grocery worker. So. What we need to do is really change back to the sociologist and light bulb jokes, right? Right. The system is broken. Uh we need to change the way we understand people's value and worth based on what they do.
2: Oh, Child workers.
1: Agree. Yeah. Childcare <laughs> workers make minimum wage a lot of times, right? Right. While um Sports figures make hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars. That disparity has to do not with how important the work is, but the um, prestige that on a societal level, people associate with each job.
0: That's fascinating. So. I, you know, I've been. When, um, sorry, go ahead, please.
1: Yeah. Oh <laughs> no, go ahead. Because I was going to start talking about the Cold War
0: for a sec. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, we don't want to go there. No, uh, I've been, um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Because, as you imagine, you know, uh, we all have a little time to think these days. But I'm wondering when this is all over. I'm wondering the extent to which we will all allow things to go back to normal. I mean, when you look around, so many of the things that we've taken for granted have proven to be entirely unnecessary, and on top of that, seemingly designed to keep people uh, subjugated. Uh, I'm talking about, for example, uh, internet companies are have now removed the, the throttles on their bandwidth service, right, so that lower-income subscribers can now have the super-fast internet. And I'm looking at this and saying, well, if you did that with a snap of a finger, you probably could have done that a long time ago, right? And also, we're looking around at our lives and realizing, you know, Uh, Our air is cleaner. We don't have to go to the office every day, necessarily. And so, and ultimately, like you said, we're realizing that the people who are holding our society together right now are some of the least protected and least paid people. So I'm thinking that when we all start to get back to something approaching normal, that working people are going to be in a position to make some demands. And I really hope that that happens.
1: Oh, boy. I really hope that happens too. Uh, it needs to happen. It does. One of the reasons we're in this situation is because of uh, the need for people to accumulate capital. So I think I am going to talk about the Cold War for a second. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the country of Cuba, right? Right uh, has has been a target of the United States since the Cuban Revolution. And, uh, and the United States put economic sanctions on Cuba, which meant mm-hmm. that that nation couldn't get any stuff from other nations that the U.S. was doing business with, that was like on the U.S.'s side, right? right. And so Cuba was for a very long time dependent on Soviet bloc nations. Nations that were associated with the USSR before it fell apart. And then the USSR fell apart, and Cuba couldn't get any stuff at all. And one of the things that it really needed um, was um, agricultural aids, mm-hmm. like fertilizer, herbicide, um, stuff that helped the crops grow so that people could, farmers could grow sure. food and folks could eat.
0: Equipment, I imagine. When,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, right. And so when the USSR fell apart, it uh, created a really hard time in the nation of Cuba. There wasn't much food, and um, people needed to figure out how to deal with that. They did. One of the ways that they did that was by raising the social status of the farmer. Yeah. Who previously was in that nation, uh, did not hold a high social status, was not really valued. but everybody needed to grow food. Folks needed to um, learn how to take care of animals. And what that meant in like, you know, somewhat crass terms, I guess for some people was like dealing with animal manure. And um, that previously didn't have a really high value attached to it. But if you farm, if you garden, you know that that kind of fertilizer and manure Mm -hmm. is really important. That whole country shifted very quickly because they needed to. And the status of workers in that situation shifted very quickly because it needed to so that the population could survive um, what what that means for people in the United States in the year 2020 is that we need to do the same thing we need to start thinking about how important it is for us to value all these folks who are holding um, our society together and really um, what it means to lower, the value and lower the status of the people who are the decision makers at internet providers who say, "Okay, we're going to unthrottle it now, and now we're going to throttle it because a gigabyte is actually one of the most profitable things that a person can control."
0: When oh, you absolutely! Think
1: about like, yeah, these companies like Comcast and Verizon. Uh, what are some other ones? AT&T I guess Century- Oh, my gosh, right? Like, giga- like where do you store a gigabyte? <laughs> you don't even have to have a place to store it, really, right? There's not that much. There's some infrastructure involved, but not that much. And they are the most highly recyclable things on the planet. Yeah,
0: it's just and information, that, right? Per-
1: that's exactly right. A person can just, like, press a button and make hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars.
0: And and ironically, or maybe not ironically, it's these companies now whose business model is the least threatened uh, by a global pandemic.
1: That's right. That's right. So really um, building community value for the people that we really do depend on is going to be critical. And that means supporting local farmers. Whether that means buying a share of a farm in a community supported agriculture way, or maybe we'll have um, some opportunity to build uh, a way to engage with local farmers, it also means um, going you know going back to the old days and thinking about how much we do value the people who are taking care of the kids in our society. Really, when you think about the ask that the college made of faculty and that the school systems are making of teachers to just take a week and put it all online, that ask in and of itself represents a devaluing of that work.
0: Here, we need you to do this incredibly complicated thing in a short span of time, and we're not going to compensate you any different for it.
1: That's right. That's right. But yes, that is true.
0: I would say that is true. But I also think because of the types of people who gravitate towards education, who are in it, obviously, for something besides the paycheck, you know, I think those sorts of people, you know, are inclined to take that burden on because they know how important it is to the continuity of, of the education that they deliver.
1: Yeah, that's really true. And actually, there's um, some research, I think one of the papers was called The Wages of Caring, that uh, investigates how folks who do go into, for instance, social service professions, healthcare professions, um, the lower paid ones, and also teaching, um, go into it, not because of the money, obviously, right? (laughs) Right. But uh, because they care. And how employers, especially if they're corporatized or use a corporate capital model, exploit that, they can say, well, you know, we actually can't pay you that much money, but this is important work. And the workers will acquiesce and say, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not in it for the money. If I was in it for the money, that would make me, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, immoral, right. greedy et cetera et cetera, so there's definitely some tension there
0: absolutely there is but this is um this is really breathtakingly revolutionary stuff here you're suggesting that how we uh how we assign societal status in the United States could be something entirely different than what the free market tells us it is that we can we can elevate whole groups of people not based upon their ability uh to increase revenues but on how well they're able to keep our society coherent and and functioning just because we decide we want to that's an incredibly powerful thought right there pretty dang subversive too if i might add Uh uh-oh are we going to publish this Uh (laughs) uh-oh um i think we're going to leave it there um lisa i really appreciate your time this has been a really challenging and and thought-provoking discussion And I hope that everybody as this pandemic plays itself out, will start thinking about the kind of society that we want to live in when this is done. Um, I think that's worth spending some time on.
1: Thank you so much for chatting with me. I always love
0: talking to you. Likewise. (laughs) Um, Before we sign off, uh, is there anything you would like to say to your uh, colleagues and students at Cascade?
1: Um, wash your hands <laughs> and 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 take care. Take care of each other.
0: That is good advice. Um, well, well, thank you very much, and I appreciate the efforts you're making on behalf of um, our students, who now must inhabit virtual educational spaces. Uh, I'm glad you're where you are and doing what you're doing.
1: Ah, thanks so much, and thanks for doing this podcast. We're lucky to have you.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Well, keep on keeping on, and we'll talk to you again soon.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: And there we have it. Many thanks to Lisa for that interview. Many thanks to Corey Kilpatrick for the introductory music. And finally, of course, many thanks to our individual contributors who we're going to hear in just a moment. So keep on keeping on, Cascade. We will make it through this. We will one day meet again. And in the meantime, be good to yourselves, be good to your families, be good to your communities. And I'll see you on the next episode.
3: Hello, PCC, Cascade Campus. This is Joshua Mead calling, or I guess posting. Um, in this podcast and just wanted to say hello to everybody. I work in the Margaret Carter Technology Education Building with Future Connect as a college success coach and instructor. I miss everybody that I work with and uh, seeing everybody on the PCC campus, uh, especially at this time of year. Um, And I'm proud of everyone for, for making this adjustment. I'm super proud of my students, especially for adjusting to this online format. This is This is a very new kind of thing for so many people, for all of us, uh, but especially for my students. And I'm super proud of my my co-workers um, uh, directly in Future Connect and also all the people that I work with at the extended, um, well, all over PCC campus. uh, So many different people that I get to see all the time uh, as I'm working with my students. And so I'm proud of everyone for for making this huge adjustment. Um, So... I'm thinking of you all and hope you're doing well. Um, And I loved Damon's little fun fact. So I'm going to continue on with that. The following can be read forwards and backwards. Do geese see God?
1: Hi, this is Becky Washington from Cascade Career Services, where your career matters here. We're open for business and more than happy to talk about your career plan. It's no doubt that when we come out of this crisis, the economic landscape is going to look very different than it looked before. But if you're ready to talk about your career path, we're happy to help. You can reach us at 971-722-5600. Of course, right now, for many of us, we should not be working. We should be staying at home. If, however, you are looking for work, we are keeping a current listing of companies that we know are hiring now. So if you are out of work, but you would like to be working, we are more than happy to help. Please give us a call.
0: Hey Abe
4: and PCC community. When I first received the announcement to participate with Radio Free Cascade, I immediately thought, that's not me. My wit and creativity comes in fits and starts at best. I was content being an audience member, listening to my colleagues who can truly wax the poetic. However, I experienced something yesterday that was so inspiring that I wanted to share. I had my first session from 10 a.m., 12 p.m. in a Zoom room with business communication students. I was done with facilitating the onboarding and syllabus explanation at about 11:10 10 a.m., and was ready to call to wrap. One student beat me the punch and asked if I would leave the room open until 12 p.m. for casual sharing. I explained once the host closes the room, everyone loses access. I decided to leave the room open and let students share, similar to what we would do during an on-ground session where small groups chat while the instructor walks the room. Over the next 50 minutes, I experienced one of the most heart-moving sessions in my teaching career. It was quiet for a few minutes, so I threw out a thought starter to get students chatting. Suddenly, students were sharing and opening up how much they missed socialization. They talked about going through waves of anxiety, depression, and apathy. They also shared how much they appreciated the stillness, hearing birds in the morning without the humming noise of traffic, long walks to think, to really think, Talking with neighbors and taking up a hobby that they always wanted to do but never found the space to explore. We also talked about our favorite wine. One student who is a bartender shared how he felt being unemployed. Another, who is a personal trainer, shared how she is barely getting by on virtual sessions. Another, who just got a dog, he always wanted a dog, just to beat the loneliness. Another, who is trying to learn how to homeschool her daughter. Finally, the student concluded her talk with, Isn't this what business should be about? Connection. Thought I'd share. Hope everyone's doing well out there.